0: Welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said to yourself, I thought I'd be healthier, and better shape, feel better both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and be further along in my life? If so, come on this journey with my dad as he explores all things health and wellness from a holistic medical perspective, even as a classically trained physician. He'll share integrative strategies to optimize health and inspire you to join the modern medicine movement. Welcome, 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 welcome everyone to the modern medicine movement podcast and a big aloha from Hawaii. It's a beautiful day. The sun is out. The natural air conditioning is blowing our trade winds. Oh, so grateful for those guys. I just, every night I just give gratitude for our trade winds because, you know, (laughs) it's still 90 degrees over here. It's crazy. I just got word from my family um, that lives in Utah. My mom is over there and I have lots of family there and it was just like, 40 degrees the other day like holy moly it went from you know like 90s and 100 a week ago to 40 degrees so anyway i don't have to feel that stinking cold i'm in hawaii and i'm grateful and i'm super pumped right now because the podcast today is literally going to knock your socks off i have an amazing guest probably the world's expert in why we get sick why do we get sick? In fact, that's the title of his new book, none other than Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who's been on many podcasts before, including The Genius Life with Max Lugavere. He's been on the Fundamental Health podcast. He's been he's been literally traveling the world to share this so so important information about why we get sick, and literally. of us have what he's going to talk about, and it's crazy to even think about that. 88% of us have what's called insulin resistance, and I had the just blessed opportunity to spend an hour on the phone with him and talk about all things metabolism, all things, insulin resistance, so amazing. You guys are going to love it. I can't wait to share that with you. Before we get into it, I wanted to just thank you again for listening, and thank you for rating this podcast. Please give me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, whatever. Scroll down to the bottom on Apple Podcasts, see those stars, click on the one to the right, and then there's a little thing that looks like a piece of paper with a pen. Click on that. It's a little link thing to drop your feedback. In fact, I want to share feedback from 23 Green Acres. You know who you are. Thank you, 23 Green Acres gives me five stars and says thank you. Three exclamation points and says, quote, this is about the most inspirational podcast I could be listening to right now. Thank you for all your work and for sharing it with us. Oh, that is so humbling. I I'm so grateful for you. 23 green acres that I can be inspirational. I just I love doing this. I love getting the good word of science out there, the relevant science that can literally change our lives, that can help us to live healthier, live better, live longer, live fuller lives. And I guarantee you this podcast today is gonna help you. With all of that, because it's so relevant to each and every one of us. Can't wait to get into it. You guys know where to find me. I'm on Facebook at Modern Medicine Movement, on Instagram at Modern Medicine Movement, as well as at Aloha Surf Doc. You can email me at Modern Medicine Movement Podcast at gmail.com or go to my website, Modern You can also join my free private Facebook group. Modern Medicine Movement Health and Wellness Group. I do posts in their lives. You can ask me questions, ask me what content you want to learn about, and I'll make a podcast on it. Why not? I just want to get the relevant information that you're interested in, that you want to know about, that your inquiring minds just want to know. I want to get that to you. So so reach out to me. I'm so grateful for you guys. This is why I do this, and I'm so pumped because we're going to just get right into this amazing interview with Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who's a PhD in physiology and developmental biology, probably literally the world's expert on insulin resistance. He's been studying this, he's been studying obesity, metabolism, trying to sort out why we gain weight, why we get unhealthy, Why do we get prone to all these illnesses that are so common like diabetes, obesity, insulin resistance, metabolic disorders, the metabolic syndrome, hypertension or high blood pressure, PCOS, low testosterone, cancer, heart disease, all this stuff, neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. And he has found a link, a link between all these illnesses that are so common And the link is none other than insulin resistance. So we're going to just jump right into the show. So pumped, so ready. Are you ready? Buckle up because it's going to be a heck of a ride. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. All right, so super pumped today. We have Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's uh, really a world-famous physiologist and studies metabolism. And has just got this keen insight in what he'll refer to as insulin resistance, which is something that maybe a lot of us hadn't heard of before. I, I think it's probably, he'll talk more about it, but maybe the most underrecognized health epidemic out there, present day. And yet, I think a lot of folks don't even know what that means. And he's really been studying this for a couple of decades. He started in exercise physiology and started with muscles and then I'm going to ask him to share a little bit about how he got interested in what's histologically very different, the adipose cell, which uh, I'll have to admit to you, Ben, when I studied uh, <laughs> adipose tissue and histology in medical school, it was uh, like a five-minute deal because we looked at the slide and we thought, oh, that's kind of boring. You know, it's an empty cell. Yeah. It's just fat. There's not a lot there. So I can't wait to hear a little bit more about you know what uh, you've gleaned and how you got interested and studying you know this this cell and and the you know the signaling and all the ramifications of what happens there so take it away how'd you get interested in, in this
1: yeah yes yeah. well thanks again for reaching out and thanks for the uh, uh, introduction yeah yeah as you noted my interest did shift during the course of my graduate work and and it really was uh, a moment where uh, i stumbled across this manuscript i wasn't intending to find it i was just Getting interested more and more in diabetes, but still thinking, just because of how common it was, but still thinking of there being, you know, looking at it through the lens of the muscle. But I, I stumbled on this paper where they detail uh, how fat cells release pro inflammatory hormones called cytokines. And that was enlightening to me because it was the first time I'd ever seen evidence that the fat cell does anything more than just store fat. Like mm-hmm. to your point, yeah. you look at the fat cell and you just see this big round blob of, of seemingly nothing and, and it belies the complexity of the cell because it is, it is more complicated than it looks. But it, so it was this observation that it was submitting pro-inflammatory proteins. And, and so one I learned at the time, I didn't know previously, that fat cells are an endocrine organ acting very much like the thyroid or the adrenal glands or the gonads, they're releasing hormones that are telling other cells in distant parts of the body what to do. And then second, it started m- connecting some of the dots in my mind and others at the time, of course, um, helping us understand some of the connection between obesity and diabetes where they almost always crop up together, um, even if it's not obesity in such an obvious sense. Like when we think of the very overweight individual, There's still something about fat cells, even in the seemingly, even in the non-overweight where the person doesn't look overweight, but if they have some whiff of diabetes, some hint of diabetes, there is nevertheless some connection um, to the fat cell. It's likely that there's something else with the fat cell going on. Um, So that was, that shifted my interest. That one manuscript, I can really attribute it to that, um, where I kind of left the muscle behind, but not totally. Um, and I became increasingly interested in fat cells.
0: Yeah, that's uh, so fascinating. And and what I think has been, you know, as I've kind of studied your work and read your recent book, "Why We Get Sick," which is an awesome, awesome book. I will put a plug in for that at the end too, how people can get that. But it's, I think it's, you have this gift, uh, really, of just being able to articulate kind of what's happening, kind of on almost like. Um, Global is not the right word, but basically on a level that sort of encompasses so many different things, whereas, you know, oftentimes we get sort of stuck in the weeds, if you will, focusing on one little, be it a micronutrient or one, you know, process in the cell, a protein, you know, or its cofactor or whatever it is. And we get so in the weeds on this one thing that we don't step out to see the forest amongst the trees, which I just love your you know, work with, with insulin resistance and how you kind of get to what I like to call, and I think many of us that that consider ourselves more of a holistic, you know, a practitioner, I'm obviously a physician, an MD that, that incorporates this kind of thing into not only my daily life and my kids and my family, but my practice to try to get to the root, you know, to the root of the problem, which I think you so eloquently did, in this manuscript, which is really readable, understandable, and makes sense to really anybody. So I think you did an excellent job on that. And when you get down to it, you know, you really talk about how insulin resistance is kind of at the root of so many of the things that we see that people suffer from. You know, the number one killer, right? Heart disease. Mm-hmm. Heart mm-hmm. disease has yep. big part of insulin resistance, cancer as well you know, neurodegenerative diseases, dementia, Parkinson's, all these things. And so, so a lot of our listeners may not be familiar exactly with this terminology, insulin resistance. Can you just kind of explain a little bit about
1: what that is? Mm-hmm. In fact, let me explain it in the context of glucose, just because you've mentioned how so often we get fixated on a particular, say, let's say clinical marker, and I think our fixation on glucose is part of why we have missed really detecting insulin resistance um, before it turns into some other disease. In other words, we're detecting a, a different disease because we look at the glucose and see that it's normal. So, with that as a preface, let you let's define insulin resistance. So, someone imagine someone who's coming into the clinic in every every annual visit, their glucose levels are always normal. But, but during these visits, the, uh, the, the medical the, the practitioner is detecting a steady increase in blood pressure year by year. Oh, you better watch that blood pressure. Oh, now you have hypertension. So let's give you a medication. And let's say this is a woman and she has ovulation problems where we end up diagnosing her with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And yet throughout all of this, these seemingly totally unrelated problems, we're looking at the glucose, and we see, well, your glucose is normal, so you don't have any metabolic problems, but under behind the scenes, there has been this, this, this cold war being um, waged where insulin is getting higher all the time. The body is becoming increasingly insulin resistant, and so insofar as one of insulin's main actions is to lower glucose, we would we would, uh, we would just say that the, the standard practitioner would say, well, glucose is normal. So, so, so insulin must be normal, but that fails to appreciate really the heart of insulin resistance, which is elevated insulin, but some of insulin's actions not working as well, including the ability of insulin to lower blood glucose by basically ushering the glucose into the muscle cells mostly. And so in this, in this same kind of clinical context with this woman, this, you know, imaginary this patient that I described, she has these um, health problems, like let's just say polycystic ovarian syndrome and hypertension, and we've been looking at the glucose and we see that it's normal. But if we were to stop and measure the insulin, it is most certainly going to be several times higher than normal. Mm-hmm. She will have an insulin that's going to be, say, the high teens or even the 20s or even 30s or higher. of of micro units per mil, and that is significantly higher than where I think it should be, and it it is proof positive of insulin resistance, and so if we shifted the paradigm away from glucose, or not away from it, but acknowledge that there's another side to this, and in addition to glucose, let's look at your insulin, and now we say, all right, your glucose has been normal, but we know that insulin is not the same as glucose, and it doesn't always track with glucose especially in insulin resistance. Now we detect that the person has elevated insulin. Now we can say, this is insulin resistance. Thus, these other disorders like the hypertension and the PCOS may not, they are likely, very likely, not individual isolated disorders. They are simply manifestations of insulin resistance. And thus, rather than give you two separate medications that do two separate things, basically just treating two separate manifestations, let's go to the root of the problem, which is the insulin resistance, and that will resolve the of these manifestations on their own because we've fixed the fundamental problem. And of course, the best way to fix insulin resistance is by manipulating the diet. But it does require a paradigm shift, stepping away from this glucose-centric paradigm to an insulin-centric paradigm. And in so doing, we detect problems sooner, because insulin is a more early sensitive marker, and we treat it better. We, we, we understand the true origins of so many of these chronic diseases, the couple I mentioned, and the more the other ones that you've mentioned. And, and now we, we, like I said, we start treating those chronic diseases better because we're acknowledging what is at the root of much of their problem. Not always, but often, and it will be insulin resistance. And, and, and that really was the purpose of the book, of, of my book. It was to help um, basically help change the conversation that a patient and a physician might have um, and and a conversation that someone would even have with themselves, but certainly at that clinical level, um, asking the question, "Might my health problems actually be a result of insulin resistance and Unfortunately, these days, the answer is probably going to be yes yeah,
0: I mean that was I think one of the more shocking you know, revelations, if you will, from your book is that I can't recall if you said 85% or 88% of us have 88, some degree 88,
1: yep.
0: <laughs> of insulin resistance. So holy moly, that's nearly all of us. And, and I have to be honest with you, Ben, as a physician myself, and, and, you know, I, like most people, I have my own doctor, right? My own physician. And I actually asked him in recent weeks, I said, Hey, can I get my fasting insulin level checked? And he was like, well, why? Your blood sugars have always been fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the paradigm, exactly, right. exactly what you said. It's, it's unfortunately alive and well. So so really, apropos, the release of your book, I think is so important for not just everybody out there, all the folks that are non-physicians, but physicians alike, because a lot of them do not appreciate This important fact that if you dig a little deeper and look for the underlying cause rather than just these separate kind of symptoms or presentations, like you say, you know, the hypertension in its—of itself, the PCOS by itself— maybe the obesity by itself, Mm -hmm. maybe the, you know, hypercholesterolemia by itself, the, you know, waist to hip circumference by itself. If you look at these things separately and not together with that lens that you're talking about through the lens of insulin resistance, you can miss the real root cause, which, you know, you and I understand this, and I'm so grateful that you wrote the book so that we can get the word out there, because it's, it's really, unfortunately, alive and well, this business about, oh the blood sugar is fine, so don't worry about it. You're okay, you know, <laughs> up, yep. and, up until you, you know, have your heart attack or your stroke or you start to have other issues, which I hope is not the case.
1: Um, <laughs> because- yeah, or you just have a, you have a cabinet full of medications, And and, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to this. I never want anyone to think I'm being critical of, of the healthcare practitioner when I kind of go through this imaginary situation. Um, the fact—I mean, I went. I mean, I went through higher education courses, some of which were shared with the MD students yeah, um, yeah. Uh, during my PhD. We would have courses together, and mean um, So I, what I, what I understand is that we only know what we've been taught, and so, and, and that is so. It's unfair to assume that someone would know something that that each of us individually knows. Um, and 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 so if you haven't so in the, in the typical. Situation of an MD, for example, or, or any healthcare practitioner, if they haven't been taught the concept while they were a student, it's possible, or, or during any of their training, um, then then why would they just know this? You know, they they don't. A healthcare practitioner doesn't get paid to ask questions. Now, let me rephrase that: a healthcare practitioner doesn't get paid to be curious and to, to scour um, the biomedical literature to find answers to questions like um, what is the connection between insulin resistance and say hypertension, you know, how are they connected? What is the mechanism? A PhD, a scientist, we don't get paid as well, of course. um, But, but we do get paid to be curious. That's kind of what's one of the cool things of the job Uh, every day when I'm not teaching, uh, which, which is frankly, most of the time I'm not teaching. I, I really, my job is to be curious. It, and to include students in that curiosity, and it is, you know, for example, asking the question, how is insulin resistance so fundamental to hypertension, one of the most common concerns with, with heart disease? And, and then sure enough, we find the answers to those questions. And again, that's, what, that's my job as a biomedical scientist. And so as I, as I imagine what the optimal situation would be, it would be, essentially the scientist and the physician, or the healthcare practitioner, but let's say physician in this case, being two sides of the same coin, where the scientist is finding truths um, uh, with regards to the body and, and health and disease. and then those truths are applied by the practitioner. You know, I, all, everything I know, it, it is I cannot have that direct influence on a patient that a physician can have. And, 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 and on the flip side, it's not really realistic or fair perhaps, or maybe it's me just being smug. It's not fair to assume that the physician would know some of these very intricate details on on physiology and cell biology that I know because that's not what they get paid to do. They get paid to see a patient. And sometimes, as you know better than I do, they don't get paid to give the patient dietary advice. Yeah, you know, yeah, that the, yeah. <laughs> the physician might not be able to you know, like bill those hours and, and yeah. get paid for the, even that conversation. So it's a very, so, so this is all my kind of long winded way of saying, <laughs> I think there ought to be a lot of forgiving all around and mm-hmm. you know, physicians forgiving me for my poor clinical examples because I'm not a clinician and never have been. And then then me, as a biomedical scientist, being very forgiving of the clinician um, for not knowing some of the intricacies of cell biology, because that's just not their job.
0: Yeah, and I think another piece of that, too, is really, um, unfortunately, for whatever it's worth, the custom, let's just call it, or the usual um, expectation, let's just say from a patient point of view, is that they've been accustomed to ask for, you know, let's say a medication, you know, what I often call mm-hmm. the, the Band-Aid fix for whatever their issue is, be it hypertension, diabetes, you know, the common things, obesity, you know, they may not necessarily desire or want to change their quote-unquote lifestyle, which includes these so ever so important things of what you mentioned, the diet, and of course, exercise is a piece of that too, which I know you mentioned in yep. your book. But I think the, the sort of customary thing is to ask for, well, what medication will help me with this? You know, what's the sort of band-aid fix, which unfortunately doesn't get to the root of the issue, especially with respect to insulin resistance for the most part. And I, I think the fascinating thing, like you mentioned, is that, number one, it, it tends to be at the source of so many, or at least in, involved with so many of these very common medical conditions, and um, it's something that can be observed very readily, even in young, healthy volunteers. You shared a couple of studies in your book about that, how you can demonstrate insulin resistance occurring over literally hours to days. If you just place somebody on an insulin infusion and then the flip side of that, which, which for me is sort of the cool part is that you can also reverse it equally as fast with sort of the recommendations, like you mentioned in the book about diet and exercise and things like that. Um, It's not a death sentence, you know, and I think sometimes we're a little fatalistic sometimes in medicine with certain diagnoses and things. And yet this is really something that effectively each individual has the power to change, which, which I think is so fascinating. As quickly as you can get it, you can also get rid of it. You can get rid of the insulin resistance, which is, which is really
1: cool. Um, Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I'm glad you're highlighting that. That is so common. I, that is such a common question. You know, if someone will mention, I have, I've had insulin resistance or type two diabetes for years. How quickly, can, can I start to reverse this? And I think I'm justified in saying, I think you could start reversing it in a day. Yeah. Basically, just start controlling the carbohydrates, allow your blood glucose to come down, which it will if you start eating less carbohydrates. And in so doing insulin can start to come down. Um, and, and now you've started solving the problem.
0: Yeah, and it's that quick. And, and let's let's get into that a little bit. And I think one of the... I hate to call it an error, but one of the common practices over the years which has been basically prescribed to diabetics and even a lot of the lay people out there is this sort of notion of frequent meals, you know, eating every two to three hours. For what purpose? Well, they say you got to avoid hypoglycemia because, oh, my gosh, you can die of hypoglycemia. And so you need to eat these small, frequent meals and and as you elucidate very well in the book, when you do that, the insulin level stays up basically all the
1: time. <laughs> yep. Yeah, in fact, I think that I, I don't know what the origins of that asinine advice is. I, I actually suspect the origins of that eat high-carb meals and eat frequently was actually given in the context of an insulin-treated diabetic, uh-huh. like, including a type 2 diabetic. It is, it's basically... Um, eat frequently and then give yourself your insulin shots. Uh, and, and, I, and I say that, yeah. but I think it's given in the context of the insulin dependent diabetic or insulin treated diabetic. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and this sounds very cynical, but I, I can only imagine that's the context because the only thing that does is basically help sell more insulin. Uh, you know, it forces a patient to just have to continue to consume more and more insulin. It is, it is terrible advice, and, and like you said, all it does is, is guarantee that a person is spending every waking moment with elevated insulin, and that chronic elevation in insulin is at least part of the cause of insulin resistance. The body is becoming resistant to what it is inundated with, and it's a fundamental feature of just the human body, um, well, even beyond the body, I do think there are actually lessons even for our, our minds and our spirits, if I can get a little kind of hippie there, but when we, when we are excessively when we are exposing ourselves to something excessively, like in this case insulin, um, then, then we start to become resistant to it. We need more and more of it to get the same benefit or the same effect that once upon a time it took just a modest amount mm-hmm. to stimulate. Yeah, and that and that's what I
0: was taught in medical school. Right, is that you know let's let's uh, characterize these are very different diseases. You and I will understand this. Maybe a lot of the folks out there will not. But type one diabetes and type two mm-hmm. diabetes are nearly polar opposite. They're completely yeah. different illnesses, and yet, unfortunately, the treatment tends to always at the end of the spectrum be. Insulin, which type 1 diabetics absolutely 100% need it. Otherwise, they come see me in the ER because they're in DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, yep. which can be life threatening. Whereas those type 2 diabetics receiving insulin only makes compounds really the problem. It makes them even more insulin resistant. You're giving somebody more insulin when they already have so much in their blood, their body doesn't respond to it well. You give them even more of it because they don't respond to it well. And we're actually in some way compounding the problem. So it's really two different illnesses, which unfortunately we're hitting with the same hammer. It's totally messed
1: up. Yeah, well said. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I'll just elaborate um, or add to it when we start giving um, the more aggressively we give the type two diabetic insulin to more aggressively control their glucose levels, the the fatter they get and the more they are likely to die from Alzheimer's, cancer, and heart disease. So we are killing them. We're making them fatter and sicker with insulin therapy. And yet it's happening in the midst of better glycemic control. That should, that should right there, Serve as a warning um, that we can't continue to look at this as a glucose disease because when we put the, glu- when we force the glucose into a normal range with, with, by pumping their body full of even more insulin, we kill them faster. And so then we should flip this paradigm and say, well, could it be that we've pushed the body, the insulin up higher? And then sure enough, that's when we start to actually explain the problem. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's
0: not what I learned in medical school, I'll, I'll tell you that. And unfortunately, yeah, it's yeah. not yet common practice to understand the root of type 2 diabetes being so, so, so different from type 1 diabetes where your pancreas, uh, pancreas cell, the isolate cell, is not working properly, whereas in type 2 diabetes, it's pumping out insulin like crazy. The problem is there's so much of it, the body, like you said, kind of gets resistant to it and doesn't, tend to get, you know, it doesn't work as well. And so our solution, and in, in I hate to say it, modern day medicine for the most part, when these folks with type 2 diabetes get to the point where they're insulin or their glucose because we're treating the glucose again, like you say, is hard to control. We hit them with the one thing that they really don't need more of in the sense that it's actually making the disease process, the insulin resistance even worse. So let's just get let's let's go into this insulin business a little bit. One of the things fascinating that you mentioned in the book is that and I think a lot of us may may know this but may not think about it, is how insulin is really, I like to call it a master hormone. And mm-hmm. the reason I like to say that is because it literally has effects on every cell of the body. I think even red blood cells, if I'm not mistaken, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, yep. but I believe even they yep. have an insulin re- receptor. And so the fact that this one hormone, insulin, is basically able to interact with every cell of our body, from heart cells to brain cells to kidney cells, you know, to nerve cells, all of these things, and um, yet we don't really focus on how we can correct the insulin resistance piece. You know, it's such a it's it's crazy, but yeah. but but. but but one thing you shared, which I loved, was I think, I don't recall if it was one of your colleagues from Duke or something that took a group of type 2 diabetics that were on insulin and mm-hmm. basically restricted their carbohydrates, you know, got them on a more appropriate diet within days or even a week or so. I think, I think it was a re- relatively small study, but it was like 12 or 15 participants. I think all of them came off of their insulin with that simple change
1: of diet, is that not yes yeah, so yeah yes yeah, so yes yeah, so uh, Eric Westman at Duke they found that they they not only are getting they not only get patients off their insulin but they uh, they have to half the dose of insulin within the first day wow. so whatever the type 2 diabetic is typically taking and, and as you know this can be really high doses like yeah. 60 units per day or, or higher they have to they have to immediately within the very first day cut that insulin dose by half. And then it's, it's basically halved again and then lowered again and again and again. And within a couple of weeks, they're off the insulin entirely. In fact, Dr. Jason Fung, who is kind of the godfather of the modern day fasting movement, mm-hmm. I, I believe, he found that in a small case study, th- the patients within just weeks, within just a couple of weeks, got off of all their insulin. Just by engaging in, in intermittent fasting, which is, of course, That's the most remarkable. the most direct way of lowering blood glucose, <laughs> and then and thus lowering glu- uh, insulin. If you're not eating, um, and, and directly challenging this advice to eat throughout the day every two or every two or so hours, um, it, it's you, you go directly opposite to that advice, which makes all the sense in the world. I'm going to stop eating at least for some period of time. Uh-huh. The body has no choice but to lower its insulin because insulin is the hormone of the fed state. That, that is one of the, you, you mentioned how insulin like a master regulator. I totally agree. It is basically the hormone. It is the poster child of the fed state telling the body to store energy, telling cells to pull in molecules and store them. And it's, it's so insulin so abhors wasting energy, it will actually directly lower metabolic rate. Um, This can be done like you take a you take an untreated type one diabetic who has essentially no insulin in their bodies. They have a metabolic rate that's about 20 percent higher than it should be based on their size. And then the moment you inject insulin, you you begin the insulin therapy. You start to detect minute by minute reductions in their metabolic rate to the point that it has slowed that 20 percent. And now it is matched like you would expect. It has matched their body size.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. You know, I, I did a podcast a few episodes back on intermittent fasting, and one of the little pearls I, I kind of mentioned is, you know, start small. Number one, like from the outset, just mm-hmm. stop snacking. Just don't snack. I mean, yeah. even if you're going to do yeah. the three meals a day, try to leave six hours or so, eight hours between your meals, and then once you are comfortable not snacking, because we want to give insulin a break, right? We want it to drop, because if we're not eating, it drops, And then if we can, you know, I think the most useful, at least I just find practical and easy, I'm all about make it easy, don't make it too difficult, don't make people require to have a journal with a pencil and pen and notebooks, like make it pretty simple. So my recommendation was to just skip breakfast. And maybe we can Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute because there's this phenomenon that... You mentioned in the book, which I found super fascinating, the so-called dawn effect. And maybe you can mm-hmm. describe that a little bit and why skipping breakfast might be helpful.
1: Yeah. In fact, I think that is a brilliant piece of advice, like a first step. Don't snack. And, and I would add to that, especially don't snack after dinner. When you've eaten that last meal, let's say around 6 p.m., be done. Be done. That is, that is without a, well, for me, that is the hardest time of day to avoid snacking. I'm at my snackiest in the (laughs) evenings. I think we all are. (laughs) You're normal, Ben. You're normal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and the the key, if someone listening to this hears that simple advice and realizes, well, it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. and, And we both know that there's that difference. This is simple advice, but it doesn't make it easy. The easiest thing to do is to not bring the snacks in the house. If you can win the war at the grocery store, then you will win the war at home in the evenings. Because if you're craving something and it's not there, then you're going to get through it. (laughs) You'll you'll get through it. And so I agree also, when someone's ready to take it to the next step, I have found in myself and others I've spoken with, the easiest meal to just cut out is breakfast. It's often a meal that people aren't particularly hungry during that time anyway. Mm -hmm. And it's also... It tends to be among the least social of the meals where it's, it's not one that, uh, the, you know, the family dynamic or, or your roommates or your mm-hmm. friends, your work colleagues, if you don't eat breakfast, it's not really going to upset anything or anyone, including in, like I said, a family dynamic. Yeah. You know, you and I are both family men. I've got three little kids and they don't even notice if I don't eat. You know, I make yeah. breakfast for them every morning. And d- while they're eating, I'm talking with them or we're, we're reading scriptures together or, or nothing. And I'm just kind of busy around the kitchen while they're eating. The fact that I don't eat, that I'm fasting through breakfast and just, say, having a cup of tea, um, it, it doesn't do anything to them. Yeah. But if I were to fast through dinner, that is a much more social meal. We're all sitting down. We're talking. Ideally, of course, it doesn't <laughs> always happen, but we're kind of we're kind of recounting the day and. And going through the day, if I'm not eating and the rest of my family is sitting there with their, you know, bowl of soup or their tacos or whatever, that's awkward. Yeah. You know, They're then like, they know sick, dad? What's the matter? Yeah. 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 Dad, why aren't you eating? And I've never wanted, I've never wanted that um, weirdness. I don't want my kids to have a weird relationship with food. Yeah. Um, I want them to grow up just eating real food. And that will by its very nature mean they just eat less junk food and less processed food. We, that's just not, uh, you know, that's not, those aren't foods we typically will have much of in the home. So I agree. I love your advice. Start with the snacks, cut those first. Once someone has gotten comfortable with that, then look at one of the meals. And I would say whatever meal is easiest, even if it's lunch, you know, we typically cut out the meals on the ends of the day mm-hmm. just to prolong the fast overnight. And I, I totally agree with that. But if someone simp- just said, you know what, lunch just works best. Well then, that is fine. You're doing kind of a 12 hour fast in the middle of the day, and a 12 hour fast at night. So be it. Um, just pick a meal and then cut that one out.
0: Yeah, yeah, and stick with it. And and I think what's yep. interesting um, historically, and I like that you mentioned that a lot of us in the morning. Um, I know for myself, you know, I'm super busy in the morning. Either I got to run to work. I start my shift at 6 a.m. I don't feel like eating at 5 a.m. when I leave the house. Like mm-hmm. I'm not hungry. Or if I get up real early to go surfing because I, I work the late shift, like like what what uh, is going on currently, I'm working the later shift. I don't feel like eating at that time. And I think traditionally, and it's amazing to, to think about historically, this whole notion that quote unquote, and I even hear physicians say this and it just bothers the heck out of me. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Oh, yeah. B.S. According, yeah, according to yeah, that's who? That's, that's propaganda. Yep. That's propaganda yep. by C.W. Kellogg, you know, Post and, yep. and uh, Harvey Kellogg way back when, 100 years ago, when they were trying to sell their breakfast cereal, which is also non-nutritive, like most of the things we reach for in the morning. Not only can most of us get by without, but most of us reach for garbage foods. They're almost all carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. They're junk foods, you know, bagels, donuts, English muffins, toast, you know, breakfast cereal. Like 99% of that is the stuff you, especially in your book, try to teach us to avoid all these carbs, especially the processed <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. In fact, you'd, you'd asked me, I just remembered, you'd mentioned the dawn phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And that is that. B- Very briefly, that's this, um, well, physiological phenomenon where the body is slightly insulin resistant in the morning. It's a natural effect. It, it, is, it is likely um, simply to uh, allow the blood glucose to climb to just basically feed the waking brain. Um, although the brain doesn't have to rely just on glucose, but even still the brain is kind of coming back online, if you will, it's metabolic demands are going to climb a little bit. And, and, and now we have this elevated glucose to feed it and not only also just to feed the muscles as as they start getting up and moving around. Um, so it's a natural phenomenon where, where, um, hormones like cortisol start to push the glucose up and that starts to challenge what insulin is doing, making the body a little insulin resistant. So of all the times in the day to eat a glucose spiking, insulin spiking meal, the fact that we do that so often with breakfast, <laughs> almost more than any other time, just makes it doubly tragic. And, and you mentioned the cereals, which is why I thought about the, that, that point, um, wanting to circle back to it. Yes, yeah, something like cereal um, or, or fruit juice or bagels or toast, that is, um, we're eating the perfectly wrong foods at the perfectly wrong time.
0: I know it's it's almost like we couldn't do it any worse than, than That's right than eat carbs in the morning, the absolute worst possible time to eat carbs. And and most people have no idea. In fact, before I started, you know, getting attuned to this a few years ago, I I never have been much of a breakfast breakfast guy, so it wasn't a real offense of mine, but but as a you know, I got young children as well, um, and we would buy cereal. We don't yeah. buy we don't buy cereal anymore. My kids all yeah. make their own eggs for breakfast. They love mm-hmm, eggs mm-hmm. and the protein, you know, and the cholesterol is a way better mix to eat at any time of the day really, but in the morning oh, yeah. especially to avoid those high carb <laughs> you know yep. food items that we just traditionally have
1: gotten used to seeing in the morning. <laughs> yep, yeah, I, I I totally agree uh, that we need to shift the focus um, in diet, away from the macronutrient that spikes insulin the most, namely carbohydrates, and, and shift to more protein and fat. And if we even, if we put this in context of even what's essential or necessary, not that we only eat what is essential. That's yeah. a very boring way to eat. Mm-hmm. But if we were going to do that, we would eat protein and fat. And we would not eat any carbohydrates because there is nothing essential about dietary carbohydrates, zero Humans have zero biological need to eat carbohydrates. Now, again, I'm not saying, I'm not telling <laughs> the listeners to not eat any carbohydrates, but I am saying that should, that should be a bit of a prompt. And we should ask ourselves, why is the one thing I don't need to eat the bulk of everything I eat? And the fact that it <laughs> spikes insulin just makes it all the more unfortunate. But we should ask ourselves, someone should ask themselves that, why is that? the bulk of all of your food. The one thing you don't need, it shouldn't be put that in its place. Let carbohydrates be the afterthought <laughs> to the meal and instead focus on protein and fat. What These are things that are actually essential for human survival. We need different proteins and we need various fats. Focus on those foods and, the, and, and wonderfully they have little or no effect on insulin. I often am wearing a continuous glucose monitor all the time and I can eat a pound of steak or hamburger and my glucose levels won't even blip. It will be like nothing even happened. (laughs) And if I eat, uh, you know, if I eat a comparable amount of calories of of cereal, which I would love to do, I love cereal. It's one of the most delicious (laughs) things on the planet. It's dessert for breakfast. Who wouldn't like it? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yep. And then my glucose, it'll spike up. It'll spike up to 180 or so. Uh. And and it'll come back. It'll take it'll take a, an hour or more. And I'm a very insulin sensitive guy, but it'll take an hour or more for that to get back to normal. And if someone's mm-hmm. insulin resistant, well, then it's going to take three or four hours to get back to normal. And of course, by then they've already eaten something that spikes their glucose again.
0: I, I let's 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 uh, expound on that a little bit because I think what you just said most of us don't think about, have never been taught, even. I'll, I'll be honest, in medical school, I was always taught you have to have glucose for your brain, for your muscles, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. And we know that that's not true. You actually don't need glucose. In fact, a better fuel for the brain and for the muscles is really fats. You know, there's this thing called ketone bodies that that we're yeah. able to use, and the brain can work just fine. Off of that, it actually doesn't need glucose, which is so contrary to the common lore and teaching out there that most of us have been taught since we were kids. You got to have glucose for your brain, blah blah. You got to have s- snacks all day long because you got to keep your blood sugar up. Oh my gosh, that's the yeah, worst yeah. recipe for for creating insulin resist.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there, there's some nuance here, and I like that you're bringing it up. What, what seems so? The degree to which the brain must-have-glucose is debated, and, and simply because you can't, um, there is no clinical, there's no way you can put someone's glucose to zero, so, so we can't actually yeah. test, does the brain demand glucose? We don't know, but we know that the brain uses glucose, and, and that's fine, but what someone shouldn't do is conflate that with the idea of the body need, we need to eat dietary carbohydrates, so let me... So again, there's zero need for dietary carbohydrate, And that's because there are cells in the body that need glucose. And yeah. the, the red blood cells are the obvious example. Yeah. And we red can blood produce cells, it,
0: which I hope you'll mention. That's exactly,
1: it. yep, that's just what I was getting to. Yep, so there are some cells that must have glucose. But the reason we don't have to eat glucose is because the liver can make everything the body needs. Mm-hmm. That's why you and I could decide, we would shrug our shoulders and say, we're not going to eat a single gram of carbohydrate for a whole week. And our blood glucose levels would basically be rock steady around 70, 80 milligrams per deciliter. It, it would be totally normal because our liver makes everything we need. Uh, and that's an important distinction in, uh, where, where people often will say, well, you need to eat this you know, 120 grams of glucose in a day because that's about how much glucose your brain will use. <laughs> yes, it will. If but the liver can glucose make it. <laughs> is the only that's right. Yep. So firstly, the liver uh... can make all the brain needs. And second... That is, that only is how much glucose the brain needs if the brain has no other option. And like you said, if the body has elevated ketones, the brain will immediately start shifting away from glucose and start relying more and more heavily on ketones to the point that the brain in a fasted state, in someone who's fasting, the brain is providing over 70% of all of the energy, I'm sorry, ketones are providing up to 70% of all the energy that the brain needs. I mean, that that right there tells us that if the brain has any preference for anything, it's that it prefers ketones because the moment the ketones are there, it begins using them and it starts putting glucose into second place with regards to its metabolic demands. So, and then one other comment, um, there was a few months ago, a study that looked at what's called a meta-analysis that reviewed all the available data in humans of looking at what glucose consumption does to mood and energy and they found zero evidence that glucose eating eating carbohydrates zero evidence that it boosted brain function and they found in contrast that at 30 minutes and 60 minutes after eating the carbohydrate people reported um, a, a worse mood and and more and lower energy they were more tired and lethargic but they didn't happen when you ate other macronutrients so this idea that someone, even even the idea of a sugar rush, you know, people say, oh, well, I ate this sugar and it made me hyper. No, it doesn't. There is zero evidence to suggest that sugar in any form makes someone hyper. And someone would then respond to me and say, well, well, Ben, what about at my kid's birthday yeah. party when they're all running around like nutjobs? It's because they're at a birthday party. And it's not it's not because they, I mean, and it's because cake is delicious. Yeah. Candy is yummy. Sure. And so it's, it's just the taste that is getting them excited. Mm -hmm. It's the birthday party that's getting them excited. It's not the actual rush of glucose into the body because in contrast, that slows things down. It makes the brain feel more lethargic and the person feel more tired. So there's a lot to challenge when it comes to the dogmatic belief that dietary carbohydrate is necessary and that it gives us this rush of (laughs) energy and we feel more alert and energetic. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, it
0: doesn't, it doesn't pan out. And frankly, it's not true. And I appreciate that you mentioned that dietary carbohydrate, or, or we could just, we've been talking about glucose, the glucose or the sugars that we can get from our diet, we, we actually don't need any of that. The liver can very well nope. make through gluconeogenesis, the amount of glucose that we need to sustain the red blood cells and all the functions that we need. I mean, you even mentioned one. Pretty amazing study of a, you know, obese gentleman who fasted for over a year, 380 days. And guess what? His brain was fine. Well, why? Because he can survive off ketones and then whatever little bit of glucose he needs, the liver could make. And I think that's underappreciated. And I think changing the dogma, changing the common belief that we need this glucose as dietary, you know, we need to consume it is erroneous and we need to drop it and we need to <laughs> appreciate um the other macronutrients and I think one of the other let's let's just say okay, you know, somebody we get that part but you know, we're trying to let's give another advantage of let's say increase metabolism maybe some weight loss. You mentioned this in your book which I loved is that when you compare the metabolic activity of let's say, you know, having a carbohydrate rich meal versus protein and fat, which one's going to, you know, let's just use the word everybody likes to use speed up your metabolism, quote unquote, and it ain't the, Mm -hmm. it ain't the carbs, right? You, I think you just mentioned a study that maybe you guys did up on campus about something like this. What can you uh, relay that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So there, in fact, I just heard from a dietitian just today saying that, um, others in her, Dietetic practice, I guess, um, they are suggest they're telling clients to eat um, every two hours to, to keep their metabolism up. What, uh, whatever. I mean, the truth is, when you do eat something, there is an increase in metabolic rate, but it is never higher than the amount of energy that's been consumed. So it's always a net gain of energy into the body. So the idea that well, you need to eat to keep your metabolism up, sure. Your metabolism will be in that moment of eating higher than it was before you were eating, but you've consumed far more energy than you're, you're burning with a slightly elevated metabolic rate for whatever the metabolic rate is worth. But yeah, so eating anything um, will have a metabolic effect. Carbs and fat have a lower metabolic effect, and protein has a higher metabolic effect, but by, by much, much higher than the other two. And what is interesting, in, in nature, protein comes with fat. And that's one of the things I'm always advocating that if someone's going on a low-carb diet, typically we'll say low-carb, high-fat. And I'm, I'm very fine with that term, mm-hmm. but, um, but I do think it's worth mentioning that often that fat should be coming as a natural source and whenever possible, of course, and that means it comes with protein. Protein yeah. and fat come together, and so the combination of those two does result in a substantial um, metabolic well boost. Um, It does increase metabolic rate for whatever, whatever that's worth. And I would encourage people not to give that much credence just because metabolic rate is, is so aggrandized. We look at that thing. We look at metabolic rate as the explanation for why every lean person is lean (laughs) and every overweight person is overweight. And the truth just doesn't bear out some of the best data on following people, like actually tracking people for years, When they measure metabolic rate at year zero and follow up at year 10, the metabolic rate at year zero had no predictive power. It did not in any way predict who gained the least um, or or gained the most amount of weight. What did predict weight loss or weight gain was which fuel the person was using. Mm -hmm. The people who were burning fat at year zero, even if they had a lower metabolic rate, were the ones who were most likely to gain the least weight, or in other words, most likely to stay lean. The people who were burning glucose as their primary fuel were the people who were the most likely to gain weight. And so, someone hearing this, what I want them to take away from that is, one, you wanna be a fat burner, and that makes sense. If you wanna stay lean, you gotta burn fat. And then the next question coming from that would be, well, how do I burn fat? Keep insulin low. One of insulin's main effects, as you and I have aptly called it a master regulator, is to determine, The metabolic fuel, if the body, a body, the two metabolic fuels are mostly glucose and fat with some other little things sprinkled in like ketones, but glucose and fat are the majority metabolic fuels. Insulin dictates which fuel is used. If insulin is high, the body is in glucose burning mode. Mm -hmm. If insulin is low, the body is in fat burning mode. So keep insulin low, stay in fat burning, and now you've, you've done what you can to stay lean or to lose weight.
0: Yeah, so, so crucial. And I love how you say in nature, the protein comes with fat, like who's ever had a big juicy, you know, ribeye, you know, for example, like there's plenty of, you know, protein in there. But there's also why do you think the thing kind of, you know, shines? I mean, the marbling, that's the fat and they come together. (laughs) It was we were made we were made to eat these natural things, both plant and animal, and the way that they come in nature is the way that we should eat it. I mean, even when you think about, let's say, the plants, like, let's let's take, you know, fruit, for example. The fruit comes with fiber, generally speaking, you know, it, it's not coming. I think that the problem is, often in the American diet, let's just call it that, we eat carbs and fat together, which is a bad combination, you know, to eat the carbs and the fat together. Yes. Whereas yeah. if you eat the carbs alone, especially the natural carbs that come with fruit like berries or something like that. Not the juice like you say in the book. I love that. Eat, yeah. eat your fruit, don't drink the don't drink your fruit, I think you said something like that. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Yep. And we just don't think about that and I, you know, I I got some teenagers and when they were young, like I was under this dogma, my pediatrician told me I should buy juice for them instead of milk. Like, yeah, holy yeah. moly, that's probably the yep. worst advice ever. But that's what he told me. And it was my first time, my wife and I, you know, we didn't have kids before. You know, he said, buy whatever, apple juice, which is among the most carbohydrate laden, you know, and it was full of fructose and all this stuff. And and yet that's what my pediatrician told me. <laughs> yeah,
1: so. yeah, it's, cra- it's crazy advice. We, like you said earlier with regards to breakfast, there are just some things that we couldn't have gotten more wrong. And, and the encouragement of, of well-meaning parents, you know, parents who love their children and are intelligent and and committed, they think they're doing their kids a favor. Mm-hmm. They're thinking, well, I'm getting you juice rather than, say, a, a soda pop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is <laughs> depending on the juice. It could on be the juice more. will spike. Yes, yes. It could be worse, metabolically uh, speaking. And God. and so really, if if you want to give your kids anything, it's it's water and milk.
0: Yeah absolutely hey hey ben i got to i got to give you a little bit of time to talk about fat since you know so much about it and there's one particular item that i just really think all of us should take home and that's what happens when the fat cells let's just focus on the fat cells for a minute when they get insulin resistant they mm-hmm. don't act like they used to. And and I know in the book you mentioned the difference between hypertrophic fat and hyperplastic. Yep. And then, you know, when they get hypertrophic, they start to do things they shouldn't do and get inflamed and these cytokines that got you interested in fat in the very beginning, these mediators that, that are occurring that cause the inflammation and, and there's a particular type of fat that can get incorporated into our own fat cells, which a lot of people don't even think about is this seed oil fat that actually Mm -hmm. gets incorporated and messes with it. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the fat cell, what happens during insulin resistant and a little, a little bit about the seed oils maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you touched on really the most relevant points here. I'll simply just kind of put them all in, in context. So insulin resistance, like we've been talking about, likely it will often start at the fat cell. So it's, it's basically the first domino to fall and then it starts bumping into the other dominoes and basically spreading its insulin resistance into other tissues like the muscle and the liver and the brain. But it starts at the fat cell. It starts where the, when the fat cell has gotten too big. And the, I, would, I would say that there are two likely signals that stimulate the fat cell to get too big. One is insulin itself. You cannot have a fat cell growing without insulin being elevated. It's impossible. And then two, it is likely a, com- a combination with these seed oils, which are, I would say, working with insulin to inhibit uh, or to promote the growth of the individual fat cells. So the excess of insulin stimulating the fat cell combined with the consumption of these seed oils basically makes a fat cell grow through hypertrophy. So each individual fat cell is getting overloaded as opposed to a fat cell getting modestly bigger and then more fat cells come in to help carry some of the load and then they get a little fatter. But they're never getting too big. But when the fat cell gets too big, it becomes insulin resistant. It starts leaking fat. So free fatty acids in the blood will start to go up. And like you said, and, and I mentioned earlier, it starts to release pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. Those two things right there, elevated free fatty acids and increased inflammation, are what basically pushes the other dominoes to start falling. It's, it started with this excessively big fat cell, which became insulin resistant. It starts leaking these products like free fatty acids and cytokines, and that's what tips the other tissues from insulin sensitive to insulin resistant.
0: Yeah, and and it's it's crazy because not only are they leaking free fatty acids, but they're also leaking some abnormal, let's just call them that, abnormal fatty acids like you mentioned in the book, the 4 H and E, the ceramide one phosphate. Maybe you can just talk real briefly about what what that's how does that happen and how does that contribute to the inflammatory cascade, if you will?
1: Yeah, yeah. So those yeah so I didn't I didn't take it one step further and I could have so within the fat cell that's becoming um, big and insulin resistant, um, some of the, there's some other actual fats that push it to becoming insulin resistant. And, and, and 4-H-N-E is one of the main products from the seed oils that we eat. So we eat a seed oil, part, one of its metabolites or one of its products in the body is this molecule 4-H-N-E. 4-H-N-E will force a fat cell to grow through size you know, the more, the more pathological or pathogenic Mm -hmm. insulin resistant version. Along with that is another lipid called ceramide one phosphate, which also pushes the fat cell to grow through just size alone rather than pulling in more fat cells to help. And ceramide one phosphate, we published a paper finding that insulin itself is a driver of ceramide production and inflammation is too and that's part of what starts happening that's likely part of the process um, of other tissues downstream or later the other dominoes that start falling when they become insulin resistant it's partly because of the inflammation signal coming from the fat cell it's activating inflammatory pathways in other cells and part of that effect of increasing the the inflammatory pathways of those biochemical pathways is to increase the production of ceramide and its metabolites like ceramide one phosphate. So we have within the fat cell and beyond, we have these lipid metabolites, you know, these other versions of fats, because there are hundreds of thousands of different mm-hmm. types of fats in almost every cell. And two of these, you know, fat products for H N E and ceramide one phosphate are thought to be very key regulators in making a cell become insulin resistant yeah
0: making it kind of this this angry you know fat cell this this abnormal yep. fat cell this fat cell that that often and I think I think the dictum goes something like you are what you eat and the seed oils are no exception to this rule when we eat them they actually get incorporated into our own fat cells and they don't help. (laughs) In fact, they, they worsen insulin resistance. And, and my listeners, I think all know this. I did a podcast on the seed oils, but these are all those highly processed, you know, vegetable oils, the canola oil, safflower, sunflower, soybean, you know, all these oils that are made basically in a crazy industrial process that is different than how you would get them in nature. I mean, let's say our ancestors wanted to get olive oil, what do you do? You just press the olives. You don't have to send them through a crazy machine, take the color out, bleach it, deodorize it. You don't have to do any of that, which is what you have to do with these vegetable oils that, you know, 100-plus years ago used to be garbage, you know, for the cotton industry, right? This was basically all Mm -hmm. garbage, and they decided, hey, we can make this stuff called Crisco out of this. Like, why not? Yeah. And then we can start selling it, we'll make a bunch of money. And Hey Procter and Gamble got involved and later they were the big contributors to the American Heart Association, which, you know, people like Ansel Keys and so on sort of adopted this whole nonsensical issue that natural fats were bad for us you know the so-called saturated mm-hmm. fats from our diet you know the eggs the the beef the meats all these things they they told us and you and I i think are a product of this upbringing i mean my mom to this day is scared of eating eggs and when she sees my son eat four eggs for breakfast she about has a heart <laughs> attack
1: she just yeah. can't she just doesn't She's about to turn you in <laughs> to child welfare yeah, services exactly yeah. and people what people have to appreciate as well you're mentioning this this kind of laundry list of these terrible fats, these fake oils um, like soybean oil, cottonseed, canola, etc. People will hear us saying that and they'll think, "Oh, well, I don't eat those." Yeah. Yes, you. Yes, you, you do. Look, you just <laughs> yep. Because it is in basically, if uh, if someone's eating a processed food in a bag or a box with a barcode, if it has any fat in it, it is almost certainly going to be one of these fake fats. And we, I can say that with the Fairly high degree of certainty because when we look at fat consumption within the United States, the single most commonly consumed fat is soybean oil. This is quantified. This is known. It is measured. It is published. The main fat that people eat is soybean oil. I mean that should be a pretty bloody sobering um, uh, uh, realization. People are thinking they don't eat these things, but they are. (laughs) It is the single most common. Yep. It is everywhere. (laughs) And that is why we eat more of our fat from soybean oil than literally any other source of fat. Far more than eggs, far more than beef, far more than than olive oil and coconut oil. It's these fake industrial seed oils.
0: Yeah, that's it's and it's so I think like like you say a lot of people may say no, I I don't eat that stuff. I'm not buying a can of wesson oil. You know, the can I buy or bottle I should say says canola oil or safflower yep, oil yep. or the granola bar that's supposed to be healthy that I'm supposed to snack on every 2 to 3 hours. When you go dive deep and you just read the label, it has of course much more than five ingredients and in there that you're going to find soybean oil or safflower oil or or one of these seed oils which until you start looking, you may think that you don't consume it, <laughs> mm-hmm. and yet they're mm-hmm. so you know bad for us both in in this just this concept of affecting our own fat because they get incorporated into it and they are not natural. They are you know the so-called PUFAs, the polyunsaturated fatty acids, yeah. which are much more prone to oxidation. And the the you know we have stress in our bodies from all different sources, but when we have oxidative stress, these are the first things to go bad, which is, you know, I think now we're starting to understand, you know, the whole, let's just call it the lipid hypothesis better because it's not the LDL that's the bad guy. It's the yeah. oxidized LDL that gets that way from the inflammation that could be caused by these seed oils and other things. And, in fact, I think you even mentioned in your book that that LDL, not only does it have, let's say, a... um um, a benefit with respect to our immune function, but also to our brain health. Like we need this stuff. It's uh, people who have high LDL, they're actually smarter, higher IQs. They live longer. They get less dementia. And yet all of the cardiologists tell you to have less of it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Once again, us doing the perfectly wrong thing to make this relevant uh, as we, you know, sort of start to wrap up. It's sort of appropriate to, to, to mention LDL. Um, because even in the context of COVID 19, some of the, you know, what we can only assume is the most reliable data out of China finds that the, the people who are the most impacted by COVID 19 have the lowest levels of cholesterol, including lowest LDL. And that's likely because <laughs> far, f- far from being this molecule that's just pushing us to heart disease, LDL is, is very much an active component of our immune systems. It can physically bind pathogens. This lipoprotein. It can physically bind pathogens and move them to the liver to be pushed out from the body. Uh, this, this is. We should not. We need to stop looking at LDL as a villain and appreciate that, like so many things in the body, it has much more nuance, and 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 likely more often than not, it's a hero far more than a villain.
0: Yeah. No, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And um, I love your analogy of the. Uh, the LDL A versus the LDL B. And I, I don't even think we have time to get into that. So just read the book. But I thought that was such a cool way to look at things because it's not just the, you know, most of the blood work we get in the lay, you know, clinic is not differentiating between these subtypes, you know? It's just looking at all LDL together and it's just not really a great marker. Like you mentioned, those with higher LDL and higher cholesterol can be much better off when it comes to fighting an infection. It's actually good for brain health. There's all of these, like you say, nuanced items that are never even talked about. And we've, because of Ansel Keys and a lot of other folks that presented us data that was basically they cherry-picked data, right? Um, that we've been told mm-hmm. that, that fat is bad for us, especially the saturated fat, which couldn't be the farthest thing from the truth, which <laughs> we are, I think, helping to elucidate, and you also do in your book, which I just, I, I hope people will, will go and get it. I, I found it fascinating how you detail out all of these different health problems that exist and in, in the role that insulin resistance has there. And at the end of it, you provided, I thought, with, a really positive outlook on how as quickly as this can happen, we can change it, right? We can actually, you know, cure this very thing that, that, you know, 88% of us suffer from. And it's, it's not that hard. You don't even need a pill. You don't even have to come see me and give you a prescription. Like the power is in our hands. So, I just want to thank you for writing that, and I hope that all the listeners will go out and get a copy. Maybe you can tell us where they can get it, tell us how they can reach out to you, follow you, and all that good
1: stuff. Sure, yeah. Hey, thanks again. This has been such a fun uh, conversation. I hope it's been valuable to the listeners. We've covered some relevant topics. Uh, The book, uh, Why We Get Sick, um, is available anywhere books are sold. Um, Of course, most people, that means they go to Amazon, and that is a perfectly great place to get them. Uh, to get it Um, beyond that I am fairly active on social media more and more it's Instagram. I just find it a more friendly place than Twitter, but regardless I'm active to varying degrees on all the main social media platforms. And it's just me sharing science. And if people want to get some of that metabolic insight, they can find me by searching for Ben Bickman, PhD. And Bickman's just spelled B I K M A N no C. And beyond that, I also have kind of a side hustle, with a couple of my brothers, um, where we make a low carb, high protein, high fat shake. And, and that's just a way to make it easy, convenient, um, for people who want to do low carb and, uh, people can find out more about that at the website, gethealth.com, and health is spelled H L T H get health. Dot com
0: again thanks so much this was such a fun conversation oh my gosh thank you ben it's been awesome I, I think actually there's i got a list of like 20 other things i wanted to ask you you know the difference between <laughs> the brown fat and the white fat and oh yeah all this yeah. other like super i'm kind of a geek when it comes to the biochemical i actually have a minor in biochemistry and so like I can geek out on glycolysis, yeah. the Krebs cycle, the, the electron transport chain. We can talk about NAD and all this stuff that our listeners are going, uh, I'd rather not. But I, I would love to geek out with you a little bit more. And, and hopefully at some point we can hang out in Utah. If you ever ski the uh, Brighton side of things, Big Cottonwood, we we tend to spend some time up there. So I'd love to hook up with you real time. We can put our kids on the slopes too. I mean, it'd be great. I really I really thank you. And, and I just appreciate you and what you're doing. And, you know, as a scientist, I think you are sharing some amazingly powerful information, which sometimes my, you know, myself and my colleagues fail to do. And so I so appreciate you and getting the word out. And please, everybody, check him out and check out his book. And until, until then, thanks again, Ben. I appreciate you being on.
1: Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks
0: again so much. All right. A big aloha to you, Ben. So appreciate it. Um, we'll talk soon, okay? you bet. Wow, wasn't that just incredible? That was awesome. What a pleasure to have Dr. Bickman on the show on the Modern Medicine Movement podcast. Just so humbling. You know, he's just not only a brilliant guy, but he just doesn't he have just a gift for just distilling down complex information, lots of studies and just making it easy for all of us to understand. He just really has this beautiful gift of communicating and sharing. And so once again, Dr. Bickman, thank you so much. Such a pleasure. It was so awesome. I'm so grateful for you guys that took the time to listen, to listen to Dr. Bickman, to learn about metabolism and learn about insulin resistance and learn about all these things that that unfortunately, 88% of us, as he mentioned in the book, 88% of us have some form of insulin resistance. So go out, get all, all, you know, just into it and learn about it, learn what you can do about it. His book, once again, is Why We Get Sick. It was just released this year. Anywhere books are sold, you can reach out to him as well. So awesome. I hope we can get him on, on a future show because there's so much more I wanted to ask him. I literally had pages of questions and notes. He's such an interesting guy, super brilliant. So I hope we can get him back on the show in the future. And I just want you guys to know how grateful I am for each and every one of you to giving me a little piece of your day to share with me health and wellness and how we can just optimize our health and our lives and just live better. So once again, guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love you guys just (laughs) oh my gosh thanks for everything for listening please share please feel free to share so awesome that you're here and share the good word share this podcast with dr big it's incredible ah it's so full of good stuff i can't wait to just uh just share even more with you guys so always 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 just your best to do a little more each and every day because we are the missing link. We have the power within us, as he mentions in the book. We can overcome this, we can do this. There's so much in our control, and you don't even need a medication, not one prescription potentially. And you can change your body's insulin resistance, and you can do this rapidly. Hours to days to weeks, you can make big changes that will change your life, potentially your family's life forever, because we want you to be well, be full, be happy, be just full of life, and be able to enjoy this beautiful world, and to do so with those you love. So once again, thank you, love you guys, a big, hello. bye -bye.